Welcome to the Adventure Brief, a podcast designed to give you insight into the startup ecosystem. It is brought to you by Adventure, the UK's first student-led venture builder and accelerator, bringing university's most talented people and ideas together. On this podcast, we speak with established founders, VCs, and Adventure's most successful participants to hear about their journeys and experiences. To find out more about Adventure, visit our website at adventure.vc. Yes, so welcome to the Adventure cohort. We're really, really delighted to have you with us. So um, we're now entering um, the fifth week of our 10-week program, where we have 14 startups being built um, from various stages, some from the ideation phase, some have already had some traction, have like an MVP, um, but they're all working um, really, really hard to develop their, their various products, um, all working in different sectors on, on different projects and I'm very, very excited um, to hear from you and to sort of hear how your journey, uh, your entrepreneurial mm-hmm. journey went, um, you know, the lessons you learned and what, what advice you'd give to the next generation. So I'm actually based in New York. Uh, surprisingly enough, uh, it's actually a lot nicer in Edinburgh today than it is in New York. Uh, we're just having a little bit of a storm roll through. Um, I, I'm actually, I'm not in the city. Uh, I'm in a place called Westchester, just north of the city. Uh, but I actually lived in Edinburgh for about 10 years, uh, from 2006 until uh, 2016. Yeah, so exactly 10 years. Um, I, uh, in 2000. 2017, so about 13 years ago, I started my first startup. Now, I had worked at startups before, so I kind of knew a bit about them, uh, but I hadn't previously started a company. And uh, working in a startup gives you some sort of insight into it, but it's not until you like, you know, you kind of grip the desk and make that big decision to kind of dive in um, that you really get the, the sort of the full learning. So congratulations to all of you that have started. In some ways, that's kind of the, the hardest thing or sort of one of the really hard things. Um, but obviously, it's a, it's a long journey. Uh, so 2007, we started a business called HubDub. It was a online prediction market. Uh, then, as as now, there was a, a, a very kind of uh, monumental U.S. election on the time. And what people did on HubDub is they traded predictions and running news stories. And one of the biggest news stories was the US election. Um, they traded for play money um, with the idea that we would build a business, like a sort of big consumer business and we would monetize through advertising. 2017 or 2007 rolled 2008, uh, we had the financial crisis. Uh, we were out raising money in the middle of that, which you can imagine was incredibly challenging. Um, we actually did raise our first million dollars, Series A. Uh, and I remember the day we pitched our investor was uh, the day Lehman Brothers went bust and the market dropped by about, I don't know, 10 or 15%. Um, and a very, very strong memories of looking around the room, this partnership we were pitching and everybody was pulling out their Blackberries and watching their sort of portfolio melt down as we were sort of pitching that they should write a check for a million dollars to us. Um, Amazingly, they agreed, uh, they invested in us, uh, and that started that that journey. Um, we, uh, we we basically, through 2008, that election year, we'd been kind of growing hubbed up. It had been growing, we'd been out pitching. Um, but what happened then, obviously, was the election happened uh, in November 4th, I think it was that year. And then after that, pretty much as soon as we kind of closed the money, uh, our growth trend went in the other direction. We actually started declining. 
Um, and I remember coming back in very early 2008, like January 1st, coming into the office and looking at our numbers and going, uh, you know, oh shit, <laughs> we're, we're actually not growing and, and it wasn't clear how we were going to grow. We didn't really have a very good business model. Um, it's something to teach you in business school that actually is right. <laughs> that Having a good business model is really important. We didn't have that. Um, and so we basically, you know, after the sort of the initial kind of shock wore off that uh, we had just raised a million dollars and our business wasn't working and we had no clue how to fix it, we sort of went back to first principles and said, okay, there's a team of five of us. There was basically three engineers, uh, myself and uh, my other partner was our head of marketing. And we said, what are we good at? And we sort of said, well, we're really good at building pretty prediction games. We're like, okay. And then what category on the site is the most successful? And it was sports, which is kind of ironic because none of the founders were really big sports fans. It just kind of sports took off. Um, so we said, okay, we're good at building prediction games. Sports is the biggest category, even though we kind of ignored it for the last year. Um, what could we do in sports? Uh, and that's when we went on this journey and really discovered fantasy sports, which again, we weren't really big players of or maybe never played before. Um, and we discovered that in the US at the time, something like 25 million people played fantasy sports. Um, we, uh, I remember one of our earliest employees who was customer service rep for HubDub, and I remember he played fantasy sports. I remember just sitting him down and going, okay, explain to me how this works. Um, and so we spent a lot of time with these users sort of trying to explain to us how fantasy sports worked. And we were like, you know, at the time, these are season long leagues. People would start, uh, say for baseball, they'd start in March, they'd play through to September. And we were like, wow, game like it takes like six months to play. That's kind of insane. And then the other one was like the prizes, because they were just like 10 people would get together and they would pull together a team and they would pull money and you know they would pay the prize to the winner. The winner were like, they weren't really that big. And so we were like, well, what if what if instead this game, instead of lasting six months, only lasted a day? And what if um what if we could make the prize pools really quite large because we could get a lot of people into them and what if you could do it all on your phone because at the time everything was uh, was on web only and they, they didn't really have much mobile optimization so that was our thesis um now granted uh none of us played fantasy sports so we didn't really know if this was a good idea or not um and so we launched the first version in july of 2009 um to pretty much total disinterest <laughs> uh, from the market. We sort of emailed a bunch of uh, fantasy sports sites. We sort of emailed bloggers um, and uh, we started doing sort of search engine marketing. So we were advertising on Google and it was slow. Um, I remember my chief marketing officer always reminds me that uh, late 2009, I said to her, she was pretty despondent um, and she, I was like, look, I've done the modeling. All we need to do is to get two users a day, two new users a day. That will be a good day. Most days were not good days. So most days we were failing to bring in uh, two. Many days we weren't even bringing in one new user. Um, and we had a number of problems. Um, so one was that um, our product, uh, our product wasn't quite right. Uh, we hadn't. We didn't really understand the market well enough to build like something that was really right. We had some things right. People liked the idea that they would play and win in one day. 
they like winning money. Um, they, uh, uh, the other thing that we didn't know, and it took us a while, quite some time to figure out, was seasonality. Um, fantasy sports, people start playing fantasy sports in particular windows in the year. And one of them was uh, late August, early September for playing football. And then the other one is uh, late March uh, for baseball. If you, if you try and uh, sell outside of those times, you're going to really struggle. It's kind of like trying to sell Christmas trees in July. Like you might get a buyer, but no matter how good your product is, you're, you know, you're not going to pick it up. And, it, and it's, it, it, seasonality was very real to us throughout the, throughout the business is still real today. And the way you get around it is you get very good at selling when you're in those windows and you just accept outside of those windows that you don't, uh, you're not going to sell. And so anyway, so July turned into August uh, and September and suddenly we hit one of those windows and we thought we were complete geniuses because the business started really taking off. Um, there was one other change we made, which was um, early September, I got an email from a user telling me that we were all wrong and that the product was wrong and, uh, you know, it was never going to work. And I was about to send him an angry email saying, well, what do you know? And then I kind of realized that I actually knew nothing. And he actually seemed to know quite a lot. Uh, and instead I sent him an email and said, hey, I'd love to get on the phone with you. Um, and so I'm really glad I did because it turned out he'd played probably every fantasy game online for the last 10, 15 years. He was like a complete expert, like a total guru. Um, and he was like, yeah, you know, you've thought that, you know, I like this bit, but what we had done, which was a snake draft where I pick a player and the other person picks a player, etc. He said, really, you should do a salary cap. Every player has got a salary. Um, and uh, I turned to the engineering team and there I said, this guy thinks, I think this guy knows what he's talking about. Um, and what have we got to lose? And they were like, yeah, I think we could build that in a couple of weeks. And we did. And he was totally right. Within like three weeks, 99% of our volume was in this new format. And so we ended up just killing the other format and moving to this new one. We had seasonality uh, in our favor. Of course, at the time, we still didn't know about seasonality. We just thought we were geniuses. Um, and so we had uh, we had a period of like uh, October, November, and November basketball came online. Again, we had another uplift. We thought we were geniuses. Um, we had forecasts that were sort of going up and to the right. Um, and we uh, we were right uh, until February happened. Um, and what happens in February is that football, NFL, goes offline. And so suddenly we really messed our projections. Um, March came around, baseball came back. That was pretty good, but still kind of far off where we thought. And then it kind of like continued, you know, March and April were good, but not great. You know, June, July and August were really bad. And it took us a year or two to really figure out, you know, this, what months are going to be good and what were going to be bad. Um, I'd say from early, probably six months after launch, um, you talk a lot about product market fit. We definitely had something. We were still pretty small. Um, we were you know, certainly losing a lot of money on that measure, but we were growing, although at this stage we, it was hard to measure a year and year growth rate. Um, we continued to grow. Uh, we had a lot of competition, um, which in some ways was good and that it kind of forced us to be better. We actually learned from them a lot. Um, uh, and it kind of every year we kind of forced us to kind of do better. Um, we 
raised our second round uh, in 2011. So it would have been, yes, our first round in 2007, let me think. It was quite long after our first round. Like we ran on fumes for quite a long time. We actually went back to our first investor um, uh, 15 months after our first investment and asked for more money. And they gave us. And they were like, yeah, you know, so you lead a little bit more of a runway, it's fine. And then nine months later, we had to go back to them again and say, hey, we would like to, you know, to get a little bit more money from you. And at that point, they were, I would say they were 50-50 on dropping us. If they didn't invest, we would have been finished. Um, that gave us through till the summer of 2012, um, when we were again raising money. This time we we're trying to raise a bigger round of four to five billion. We pitched about 90 investors um, and we got one term sheet. Um, so they always say when you're pitching, try to get multiple term sheets. You can try and get them to compete against each other. Well, we got one. Uh, one's not great. It's infinitely better than zero. Um, and so anyway, we, we got that term sheet. We were ready to do the deal. And then in the middle of all of that, the NFL and the NBA went on strike or went on lockout. So it doesn't happen in the UK and in the US, players collectively bargain with the leagues. And if they can't get an agreement, they basically refuse to play. <laughs> and so there's going to be no season. And so we were sitting in a situation uh, with uh, really no prospect of, of having a business for potentially six months. Um, our investors, fortunately, up to this point, weren't really aware of it. Uh, they were based in London. Uh, Unfortunately, about a week before we were due to close, they became aware of it and were suddenly like, uh, we can't invest unless this gets resolved. Um, we had a very nervous one to two weeks um, when actually the NFL finally got to a resolution um, and we were back on track. And uh, I remember actually I'd booked a holiday for like a couple of weeks after we were due to close. It ran and ran and ran. And, and uh, in the end, I went on holiday and two days after I was in holiday, my co-founder just like closed the deal. And he still to this day reminds me that how he closed the deal. I'd gone on holiday, um, but it was like, he was literally to use a football NFL analogy. It was like, it was on the one yard line. I'd brought it all the way up the field and he'd kind of brought it over. Uh, but he still takes credit. Um, so anyway, we, we closed that round. Um, uh, and then from there, we uh, we grew pretty quickly. Uh, we always had a lot of competition, um, uh, which forced us because in 2013, 14, we were, you know, we had a path to profitability, but we always had competitors raising more and more money. And so we kind of had to match them. And this just got even more extreme. So in 2015, uh, we raised um, about $350 million. So that from that first year, uh, 2000 and, uh, 2009 or 2008, raising like 2 million. Uh, and then the next round, about a few years later, raising uh, 4 million. We're up to raising 350 million. Our next biggest competitor, well, they were number two at the time, <clears throat> that year raised over 500 million. So even though we'd raised 350 million, we were short stacked. And they were going directly against us, uh, competing, trying to like, basically destroy us. Um, 
the company had scaled at that stage to about 250, 350 people. Like we were literally adding dozens of people every week. I had completely given up any possibility of remembering anybody's name um, because so many people were joining so quickly. We had offices in, and we still do today, uh, Edinburgh, New York, LA, Orlando. Um, and this company just got, got really, really big. Um, 2015, uh, we spent about $250 million on marketing. Um, DraftKings spent about twice that. Uh, if you watched US sports at the time, uh, it would be not unusual to see one of our ads in every ad slot. It was pretty much relentless. Um, we pissed off a lot of people <laughs> with their advertising. Uh, and uh, what that did is it sort of created this environment where uh, there was kind of a lot of negativity towards companies um, and the category and also created an issue because fantasy sports doesn't have like clear a clear legislation that says fantasy sports is clearly regulated and legal it sits in this category of game of skill and it's a game of skill it's generally considered legal but there's no law that you can point to it's in the same category as like a golf tournament um, or, you know, other contest of skill where you pay an entry fee and win a prize. Well, uh, that suddenly became a problem because uh, state attorney generals and every state as an AG suddenly took an interest in this and said, wait a second, this looks like gambling, smells like gambling, but it's not regulated. We think it's illegal gambling. And, and that's very problematic because uh, in the US, if you're found to have run a you know, online gambling or you know an illegal gambling business uh, not only is that a civil issue something that you'd have to pay a fine for but it's also a criminal issue like something you can go to jail for um and so in, in around november 2015 we basically got uh, a letter from the new york attorney general and a very public letter he published it before he sent it to us saying that we were breaking uh, New York gaming law and that we were effectively criminals. Um, for a moment, we actually were quite worried that he would sort of turn up the office with the police and kind of, you know, march me out in, in handcuffs. Um, they didn't, uh, but that genuinely was a fear. Um, as you can imagine, uh, our employees were very nervous. Uh, our investors were probably even more nervous. Um, uh, and we ran into a period uh, where not only did New York come after us, but another 11 states issued similar opinions. Um, so we basically started to look at our map and saw all these states kind of disappearing. Um, and in some of those states, we just said, you know what, Hawaii, okay, it's too small. Idaho, we'll just like, we'll just exit that state. We're not operating anymore. Um, but some big ones like New York and Illinois, we were like, we can't give up the state. If we lose in the state, then we're going to have to shut down anyhow. So we have to fight. And so about two weeks after we got the letter from the New York Attorney General, uh, we sued him in court. Uh, and we basically said that uh, what we saw was a kind of stay. Basically, he's trying to shut us down. This is damaging to your business. We need to stay everything while we go to court and we prove that we are we are legal. Um, ironically enough, we actually got we lost in the lower court. We went into court, and you know we had 
very dramatic court case. Um, two hours hearing. Afterwards, we lost. We went to appeal, and by the next day, we actually won on appeal. Uh, and so we were back open in New York. We um, other states weren't as litigious. So in some states like Illinois, we just stayed open. We filed a suit. It kind of got buried. Um, but in New York, the what we also did and what we did in every other state is went to change the laws. So we literally went around every major state in the U.S. and said, look, you know, if these attorney generals get their way, they're going to shut down fantasy sports in your state. And you know what? Millions of people play fantasy sports in your state, and that's going to be really unpopular. And so we built this sort of national lobbying operation that was lobbying in state capitals like Albany in New York, Sacramento in California, um, Springfield in Illinois. Um, and uh, over the next two years, we actually passed legislation in, I think it was something like 20 states. Um, so it was incredibly fast. Um, and that just sort of clarified the law that fantasy sports was legal. Um, we, uh, we were very successful on that, ultimately. Although the period, as you can imagine, sort of early 2016, as we were seeing this drip drip of uh, state shutting it down, we also had our payment providers sort of threatening us with, um, you know, shutting us off. If we lost our payment provider, uh, the, the game would be up. Uh, and just to add to that, just as sort of a, a nice icing on the cake, uh, the industry was being investigated by the FBI. And actually, we're actively investigating um, uh, one of our competitors, DraftKings. And so that was slightly concerning as well. Um, ultimately, we, we sort of got through that period. Um, it definitely had a big impact on the growth of the company. Like we had a massively pullback on our spend. Um, we weren't as attractive as an investment, as you can imagine, because uh, people were worried that, you know, not only the principals, i.e. the CEO might go to jail, but the investors could go to jail. Um, that always dampens people's interest in investing. Um, and so we... Uh, we had a sort of cutback, and we actually had layoffs at the time uh, because we needed to control our costs. Um, we uh, uh, we sort of steadied the business. Um, we uh, additionally in 2016, uh, and this is something that had been in the offing, was like we should just merge DraftKings. The competition between these two companies is um, is just incredible, um, and not and it's very damaging for both businesses the only way to fix this is to merge the two companies we started that discussion in about march and by i think it was october or november we agreed a merger that then uh, went in front of it's known as the federal trade commission in the uk it's known as the monopolies and mergers commission we basically look at it and say is this is this merger harmful uh to consumers um and so they reviewed it. We went through a very long process, went to Washington many times to get interviewed. Um, and at the end of that, in July 2017, uh, they uh, ruled that the merger was damaging to consumers and they blocked the merger. <laughs> and so we were back on our own. Part of me wasn't totally upset about it uh, because I knew the merger would have been very damaging for Fangio um, because DraftKings, I think, really just wanted to do a takeover. They didn't want to do a merger. They didn't want to preserve our brand. And so I knew it not going through was kind of good for, for us from a brand perspective. Um, 
the next thing I actually left in 2017 to start my new company. I'll tell you about that in a moment. Um, but I'll just wrap up with Fangio. Uh, Fangio then ultimately sold uh, or merged with Betfair, it's now known as Flutter, US business in early uh, 2017. Um, so it's basically now, it's still Fangio brand. It's actually the, uh, the other thing that happened significantly in 2017 is the US repealed its ban on, on sports betting. And so now Fangio is not only a fantasy sports business, but actually is now the US largest sports book. So in the UK, it's the equivalent of, say, Bet365 or Paddy Power. In fact, it's equivalent to those two put together uh, because it is something like a 45% market share. And really what it did is it leveraged its customer base in fantasy sports and brought them up to sports betting. Um, I left uh, Fangio to start my new company, which is called Flick. Um, Flick is a group chat platform for sports fans. Uh, I actually started it with one of my co Fangio co-founders, who's based in Edinburgh. Uh, company's still pretty early stage. We uh, have about 16 people today, um, of which 13 of them are in Edinburgh. Um, they were normally in Codebase, uh, if you're familiar with that place. Uh, now they're all remote like the rest of us. And they, um, uh, so all of the product and engineering team are there. Um, we've raised to date, uh, we raised a seed round in 2018 or 2017 of, um, I'm getting my dates wrong here. No, I'm sorry, we raised it in 18 um, and uh, after I left Fangio in 2017. And then we raised another Series A of 5 million and we just announced that last week. Um, uh, it's early, it's growing. Um, the concept is that we want to give sports fans a place to hang out with other fans during the games. Um, there isn't really any other good place to do that. Uh, Twitter is one example, but it's not really built for sports. Um, and so that's that's our kind of idea. And, and our idea to monetize it is, uh, is through sports betting. So we want to integrate with sports books that, you know, we, we that if you want to bet, then you can actually link through from Flick over to the sportsbook, place a bet, and then come and hang out with other fans during the game. So that's a sort of very quick run through my career. Um, uh, kind of highs and lows, uh, um, but maybe maybe I should kind of pause for some questions. Well, thank you so much, firstly. That was really, really interesting. Um, we'll open the floor to questions. So you can either just sort of um, put your like, virtual hand up or you can put it in the chat and um, we will go through the questions uh, like previously. Um, but whilst people are sending in their questions, uh, let's start off with something a, a bit more general. Um, what, what sort of lessons would you take from your experience with founding FanDuel um, into your experience founding Flick? Like what maybe mistakes did you make the first time around that you're really conscious not to um, to make again when uh, when building Flick? Yeah, no, it's a really good question. And there's lots. Um, I think the biggest one, and you will hear repeat founders say this a lot, and it's, it's pretty hard to understand the second time when you're doing it the first time around but the, the thing that really matters ultimately is culture your company culture um and everyone goes yeah everyone talks about that but what does it really mean well the thing that is going to make your life miserable is that not when things get hard because in startups you're going to get hard a lot it's so when they get hard 
that the people around you are not in it for the right reasons. Like if they're in it purely for financial reasons and you know, the shit hits the fan there, the worst thing is they don't quit. Like it'd be great if they just said, Hey, you know what? I was here to make a lot of money. Clearly not happening. I'm out of here. No, they become like problematic. They become complainers. They, um, you know, they become incredibly disruptive. They become very political. Um, and that's what that is, is evidence that you're, you're doing of the right culture. And it's actually, whatever the shit at the fan, it becomes much harder to fix your culture. What you need to do is when you're hiring and building the company, being really focused on hiring people that are there for the right reasons. Um, and what that, what actually a day-to-day -day decision that is, is whenever you have someone in the company who's not kind of sort of a living to the values that you believe they should do, but they're a high performer, that's a problem. Um, and I'll just give you a concrete example in Flick. You know, we had an engineer who's brilliant, um, very talented, highly productive, but disruptive. And, and other engineers find it difficult to work with. At FanDuel, we would have looked at that engineer and said, we can't afford to lose him. Like, we just can't risk it. He's so good. You know, it'd be really hard to replace. At Flick, we basically, my co-founder did sat him down and said, a brilliant engineer said, Bob, you need to work on this if you want to stay here. And we were totally prepared if he, you know, we wanted to help him. We wanted him to be great. And, you know, the good story, the new story is here is that he really fixed the way he interacted with the team. He was actually like, look, yeah, I know that. The last environment I was in, they expected people to be kind of aggressive. So yeah, what, what that meant was that uh, with Fangio, we basically had too many people who were like that, who were disruptive, political, in it for the wrong reason. And when things got wrong, it was, you know, it was really a nightmare for, for people who were in it for the right reason. So that, that's the biggest one. And, and the thing to, to check as you're growing as a company is taking a longer term view. It's like, yes, this person may be really good, but they're not living to the values. They're not creating the company I want to create. Uh, you, you also mentioned, if I can ask a question, you mentioned that following your first investment, uh, FanDuel stopped growing. So how, how did the investors react to that? And how, how <laughs> did you deal with the pressure? Did the investor put any pressure on you following uh, the investment and the, the stop of growth for FanDuel? Yeah. So like one of the things about investment is um, once they've invested, they generally can't take it back. Um, they can get kind of, you know, it's like a kind of a good thing, right? They can get kind of grumpy. Um, another thing is, um, these are things they don't tell you. Another thing is, very first board meeting you have once you take investment is kind of known among investors that they kind of reveal all board meeting. They kind of go in there expecting, because up until that point, you're selling them, right? First board meeting, they come in, you're like, well, it's not quite as good as that, right? So they kind of expect it. The third thing uh, to remember is when you're out pitching, you have this rosy projection of what you're going to do. It's bullshit. You know it's bullshit. And to be honest, good investors know it's bullshit. The problem is that, and, and, the good, and with good investors, so best investors, they don't ask for a projection. They don't, like basically they know that they're asking you to, build a work of fiction. Um, uh, now that's on revenues. On costs, you should be able to forecast costs. You can control them. But on revenues, you don't know. Like you don't know what you're going to do next month. Um, never mind like, you know, two years out. Um, 
So the very best investors don't ask you to do it. Good investors will ask you to do it, but not hold you to it. Unfortunately, there's a lot of investors kind of in this third category that make you create this work of fiction and then pretend that you're really going to hit it. And then when you don't hit it, start to like kind of beat you up on it. Um, for early stage investors, they were kind of in the third category. Um, uh, actually, you know, I still like them, but they're, they're much more in that kind of old school. Um, and so it was a bit painful, but they didn't, they didn't like beat us up too much, right? Like um, uh, they were kind of not happy, but after a while you realize that yeah, I can handle them not being happy. And, and we just also kind of realized was, it's not their company, it's like our company, they're investors and our job is to make it work in the long term. And okay, it's taken longer than we expected, but um, you know, that's like, we can't help that. Like just to give you an idea on forecasting, um, our, once we did turn it to FanDuel and we were uh, filling a forecast as FanDuel, we were two years behind our forecast. Like we were two years behind. Like just imagine your forecast building out. We hit our numbers, it took us two years longer than we expected, and we still built a multi-billion dollar business. So it's kind of like when people miss their forecast, like, oh my God, this is like destruction. Like we were two years out and we still, you know, built a multi-billion dollar business. Um, that's that's really good to know. Um, and on, on that topic, actually, we have a question about how to deal with the third type of investors that you mentioned. So <laughs> is there a tactic or should you just grin and, and bear it? Yeah, well, like the first one is, don't take their money <laughs> like that's it that's the optimal one because you can't you can't manage around it right like you're if someone comes in like there, there's there's probably like i would say there's there's kind of maybe really four classes there's great you're like gonna substantially like you, you know they're you know ethical they've have operational experience they know how challenging it is they're 100 supportive of you great investors there may be like 10 percent, right of, of of the pool of investors there's the good ones that's maybe like 20 percent. they're the ones um that you know they're not great but their heart's kind of in the right place they may not have a lot of operational experience but they're generally supportive of you that's maybe like 20 percent and then there's like 50%, you're kind of like, they're, they're not adding any value, but they're not destroying value. Um, they give you money, which is great, but they're not, you don't really look to them for anything else. And at, at worst, they're just kind of like a little minor headache, but that's fine. Um, the biggest problem is the bottom 20% who actively damage the business through basically, you know, I can give you a list of things they can do dumb ideas that you have to follow through on right um uh introductions love making introductions they're trying to prove that they're valuable um being incredibly difficult on terms that are disruptive to the growth of the business um being personally disruptive getting involved in the management team so there's, there's a whole bunch of with that last class the only way to solve it is not to have those investors um once you have some an investor like that on the board, your life is going to be miserable. Unless your business is like such a stellar success that you know they they just are happy and, and don't bother you. Um, there's really no solution. With the other ones, like 
honestly, like a part of it is it's like a, a relationship. You know, if they're not in that category, they're in the kind of meh sort of one. Just invest in the relationship, get to know them. Always make sure that you're talking to them frequently. Never surprise them in a board meeting. That's one of the things I always discovered is like always have one to ones of them outside a board meeting. And so that when they get a board meeting, they're like, oh, OK, I kind of know where this was coming. Um, and also just sort of manage manage expectations. Like that's one of the things that you just need to, you know, if it's going to take, you know, six months to build a, you know, the next release of the next product, don't say we might get there in three, right? If it's really going to be six, say it's going to be seven and they're going to be pissed off. Seven months, that's ridiculous. I know guys could do it in like three months and then do it in six and they're like, wow, okay, you, you know, you know, you, you, you over deliver. Thank you. Uh, I had one more question. You mentioned a few times how tough the, the competition was. So how did you deal with the competition? Did you just try to match the, the marketing budget or uh, how do you, exactly did you try to cope with this uh, intense competition? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. And it's very rare. You don't see this much more in the US, but you rarely see a direct competitor who's like, we're going to do exactly what you do. We're just going to raise twice as much money and spend it, right? Like that's, that's actually not that co less common than you think. Unfortunately, we were in that situation. And there, like, we had to raise. Like, we had to raise and, and try and we weren't going to match them because we knew that they were burning money. And we felt that we would, if we did that, that would be very value destructive. But we sort of said, like, we want to, we want to keep up with them. We're going to be more efficient. We're going to be material, but we we're not going to we're not going to try try and chase the number one spot. Um, honestly, if you're in a market against somebody like that, um, who's going to keep raising money, it's it's very 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 hard to win because in some ways they're kind of destroying the market. Um, and, and and sports betting in the US is a little bit like that still today. Like both companies are spending hundreds of millions, neither is profitable. Um, and it's a bit like, you know, if you're wanting to try and compete heads on with uh, like Amazon, right? It's just a bad idea. And so to some extent, what you need to do is to like change the script, like, um, you know, get, get into a different part of the market because if someone's got a billion dollars and you only have a hundred million and you're competing head on, you're going to lose. And so that's kind of a big one is like, don't try and compete in that way. If somebody's got a bigger, you know, a bigger wallet than yours, don't try and compete in money, try and find another way to compete. Um, we have another question on investors actually. And um, it's how you manage to convince your investors to continue their support during the tough times you, you mentioned. Um, mm -hmm write the letter etc yeah it's a good, good good question um so there's a couple of parts to it like the first one is um no investors like to write off an investment this is probably one of the first ones so they'll not indicate it's unusual for an investor to tell you up front oh yeah we'll support you don't worry right some of the best ones are quite good at that or you know will do that but most of the time they want you to sweat it and it's only until the last minute they're like, okay, you know, if we have to, um, and, and that's kind of been my experience. And even the good ones will, will are going to let you sweat it. And to be honest, you kind of should be sweating. Like I have seen an entrepreneurs who are like, no, my investors, you know, I've got my back kind of thing. And they're not, maybe not as focused as maybe they should be. 
I think it's good for a founder to really know you're, you know, you have to make it work. Um, that certainly helps me focus. Um, I think I think that's the first one. Um, you always have to set them a path, right? Um, set them a path of how we're going to get there. The other one is just validation. Like you've got to understand with investors is they all like to think of themselves as being, you know, uh, contrarian, like amazing at seeing opportunities that other people don't see. Well, for 95% of them, that's like total bullshit, right? They want to invest in the same stuff that everybody else wants to invest in. And, and that's why like so often you're seeing like, you know, whatever, a Clubhouse, for example, Clubhouse just like was the rage this summer, you know, Andreessen Horowitz put in like 10 million, 100 million pre, and it's like the hottest thing ever. Well, yesterday, the Clubhouse for Sports just raised $9 million because, you know, Clubhouse is hot and so sports. <laughs> so they are very, very sheep-like. Um, and so like another company that I uh, founded last year, we had an investor and they were like, for a lot of them, they're always asking like, who else is investing, right? And I'm like, why do you care, right? Like, do you not believe, trust yourself? And, and really what they're saying is they're looking for some validation that they're not going to be a moron, right? Because they're not they're not going to spend that much time. And another probably um, uh, really uh, another perverse case of this was Theranos, right? Who did the due diligence into Theranos? Theranos was like a if you're not familiar, it was this idea that you would take a little prick of blood and, and you put it in a machine and it would like run an analysis and identify you know like 300 different diseases and stuff. And it it was a total fraud didn't work, right? Um, and they raised like hundreds of millions from some really big names. And what happened was everybody just sort of thought, well, the other guy must have done his due diligence. Like, obviously, no one's seen the machine work. Um, but kind of that's on a big scale, like in a smaller scale, investors are kind of like that. They, they want to see where's the proof point? Where's the other guy who's putting money in? Because they don't really, apart from the very best investors, they don't really dig in very deeply and, and form their own view. Hi, Nigel, I've got one question, sorry, uh, just a quick mm -hmm. one. What's the hardest decision you've had to make so far and how did you go about doing that? Ooh. Um, hardest decision. What, one of the really hard decisions as a founder, like one of the hard decisions is always letting go people or firing people through blunt. Uh, particularly if they're a co-founder. Um, a lot of founders, like founder CEOs have to do that. Um, like among sort of my group of friends, uh, like I've had to do it among, you know, I, if I sort of could think of another 20 founders, I would say over half of them have had to do it. Um, that's incredibly painful um, because this is somebody who's maybe been there from the start um, they may have been problem from the start, <laughs> in which case it's it's slightly easier because you don't feel so bad about it. Uh, but it maybe they were great at the start, but you know they were like a great engineer, but they're just really disruptive, and you know you needed to kind of they just couldn't scale, and they they couldn't handle that they weren't the most important engineer in the room because you know you needed a manager and you needed a team, and they they just like. Steve Jobs is a classic example of that, right? Like in his early career at Apple, he 
he just became very disruptive um, and he got fired. Um, that's the hardest. The one thing I would say about that is like you, the firstly is try and get a founder that that doesn't happen. You could really scale with the business. Two, if they don't scale in that role, try and find the role that they will scale in. Like just because they're the technical founder doesn't mean that they're going to be the CTO. Um, there's other roles they can be really great at. Um, and three, if, if that doesn't work and they have to exit, try and do it in a way in which you can be friends afterwards. Um, that's pretty hard. I'm pretty proud of like I've uh, I've had to lose uh, co-founders before and I'm very good friends with them. Um, and so, and I'm really pleased. That's one of the things I'm most pleased about um, because that was not, not easy. Is there like a, a mistake you would say that you made that like comes to your mind that was like particularly big? So if you had to name one mistake that was like uh, your biggest mistake in, in founding FanDuel. Yes, the, yeah, that, that, yeah, that, that actually very easy. Who we brought on <laughs> as investors. Yeah, who we brought on as investors. Um, they were, we brought in private equity and uh, private equity um, is their mindset is that they are 100% out for themselves. So when you join the board of a company, you have a fiduciary duty. And what that actually means is that the shareholders have put you in a position of trust to act in the interest of the company and all its shareholders. Um, and the people that we brought in um, didn't do that. They actually effectively sold the company to themselves and, and, and defrauded the, you know, the other shareholders, including the founders and employees. And so I'm actually in the middle of a lawsuit with my former board over that very thing. And, and that, you know, that's only the most public part of the issue with them. You know, some of those other issues I talked about uh, with the difficult board members are, were also really true as well. And going back to sort of the topic of co-founders, we had a question specifically about how you came to meet your co-founders mm -hmm. uh, before beginning <laughs> In a pub. <laughs> <laughs> and how did the idea develop from, from that? Did one of you already come to the table with the idea before meeting the others or did, did that, yeah. is that something developed together? Yeah, so it's a, good, it's a good question. So actually, I'll tell you about our co-founders. So Fangel had five co-founders, uh, one of which I didn't meet in a pub. Uh, I actually met her at university um, in St. Andrews. And so she's my wife, uh, still my wife, uh, which is fortunate. Um, and we then met the other three co-founders, Tom, Chris, and Rob, at a pub after an entrepreneur event in Scotland. Actually, at, in Doctor's Pub, if you know it. Uh, that's where we met in 2007. Um, and Tom and, and Rob were in a startup. They were trying to create this kind of Facebook type product. And I was in a corporate job, wanting to get out and do a startup. And so I had an idea. They had they had a, their own ideas and they had their, uh, and then we talked a lot about what they were doing. And they talked a lot what I wanted to do. I was like, I need an engineer to help build me this thing. And they were like, we need, like uh, we need help in what we're trying to do here. And, and eventually we are like, it would make sense for us to work together. Uh, hi, uh, first of all, thanks for your talk. And uh, I wanted to know like, have you ever turned down uh, a client during running your business um, mm -hmm. and why? Yeah, yeah. So we, we've always run sort of consumer businesses. So we've never really had uh, like it's never really been a B2B transaction. The one thing I will, it's sort of similar, which is we've, 
turned out pursuing directions of business that um, that we didn't think were core to what we were trying to build. So one of the challenges, so this is the way I always find startups. When you start, you think you're, the world of what you're gonna do is gonna be like enormous. Like we're gonna do these, you know, really broad, all these things. And as I actually get into it, it gets narrower and narrower and narrower to what you're actually, what you actually can do. And one of the challenges in, in it is that as you narrow it, and that's a good thing, suddenly you get this thing that's over here and say, hey, we should, we could do this. And it would be easy revenue. Just to give you an example, FanDuel, we had, um, uh, we had a, an investor and he was also an ad partner, which is NBC. And they were like, we need somebody to help build, rebuild our content management system. We've got a team of engineers. Some of them are like, we could totally do this, yada, yada, yada. I got convinced that, okay, they could do it and we could make a profit on it. Total disaster, totally non-core to what we did. And suddenly we're in a big fight with the, one of our investors over a project we should never even have been doing. Um, and so that was the example where we did do it and I really regretted it. Um, mostly turning down businesses is a, you know, like whatever you, whatever we've had a 50, 50 decision and we've done it, it's been a mistake. Um, you always have to sort of go back to say, look, okay, great. This is going to do something, but does it help us get to where we need to, you know, our vision? Uh, thank you. So we'll just take the final question because we don't want to overrun and take up too much of your time. So there's a few here, actually. Um, you can always sort of jump in on Twitter uh, to ask your remaining questions mm -hmm. after this call. Um, but I think to to sum up, um, Jordan wants to know if it's if you think it's possible to teach um, sort of the bright but disruptive people that you mentioned uh, to sort of work with them uh, to build the the quality of humility and 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 build that team dynamic. Or do you think with with these kind of people, mm. um, it's very difficult to actually um, create that that synergy? Yeah. So disruptive is not bad. Like uh, startups in themselves are perfect disruptive if you're one of these people who just wants to do the way things have always been done you know generally not in a startup um it's where they're um it's where they're damaging and i, I don't think it's so much humility it's empathy like um and and i think the answer and i know the answer is yes um if they want to fix it so that's one of the that's a key thing and so some people when you have an employee uh, or somebody you work with who is doing something that's uh, distressing to other people and you sit them down and say, you know, you're doing this and this is the impact it's having. They're quite shocked. They're like, oh my God, I didn't know that they were upset about as that. And and trying to do it in like a non-judgmental manner is really important, in like a non-judging manner. Um, and they can go, oh, you know, or in this instance, I talked about one of our engineers, he was like, yeah, you know, the culture I was in before was kind of like that. They rewarded that. Um, and so he, he resolved that pretty quickly. I've seen other people do it. The cases where they don't do it is where they don't want to fix it. And and so they won't get that empathy if they don't really see it as a problem. And that's the only way you can find out is you can give the chance to fix it, be really clear about the behavior you think is problematic. And, and if they continue with it, you know, you go back to it, but at a point it becomes clear that they, they just don't care um, or they don't see it as an issue and they're there. It's never going to 
All right. Well, thank you so much for the insight. We really enjoyed hearing um, about your journey and also your insights, uh, particularly into the team dynamics and also into investors, because, uh, you know, hopefully there'll be a very relevant point for the startups um, at some point in, in their journeys, too. So thank you so much for your time. Yes, we really thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.